From the kitchen table, this is Gate Closed Panic. Good morning. I hope you're all very well. As usual, I'm coming to you from unceded Ghana land, surrounded by all of my earthly possessions in a tiny spare room at my mum's house. I'm staying here for a while while I renovate a little unit that I just bought, which I love very much, but like many of the things that I love, is a real pain in the ass. Nevertheless, uh, I think I'll move in next weekend, um, and I'm extremely excited to be alone, albeit in rather unfinished surroundings. This is all to say that It's been a few weeks since my last episode and that's why. I find especially over the last 18 months, I'm less capable of pushing myself to do productive things when I want to be resting and generally less capable of ignoring my needs, which is very annoying for me because I'm pathologically self-controlling. So having my needs and feelings pushing their way to the surface against my will has meant having to develop a more forgiving relationship with myself um, and a new understanding of my limits. That was me deftly setting up for a segue into this week's guest, Ida Sophia, a durational performance artist whose work has been exhibited around the world. Since I recorded our conversation a few weeks ago, I've been thinking about the ways in which we ignore the quiet voice telling us what we need or what we love and what we lose in pursuit of a more superficially comfortable or easy to imagine future. It's not lost on me that we're often barred from living in a way that's responsive to our needs for structural or practical reasons. And I'm the first person to screech that career fulfillment is a privilege for few and a rod for the back of many. But I think there are still small ways in which many of us are turning away from our instincts when we needn't, either out of fear or out of habit. And it's there that we lose the chance to look at our needs directly and honestly and figure out what we need to do to bend to them rather than constantly contorting in order to tell ourselves the lie that we need nothing. I'm not suggesting that we all need to follow our dreams. I'm not a neoliberal moron who thinks you can get what you want if you work hard enough. I know that structural forces will, in almost all cases, keep you where you are in terms of privilege, no matter how hard you work. But I think the pursuit of listening to ourselves and taking whatever small steps we can to be responsive to what we hear is a means by which we can push back against a productivity and success-oriented model and instead orient ourselves towards our own needs and the needs of our community. What strikes me about Ida's story is the ways in which she repeatedly chose to do anything other than what she really wanted to do, but without fully realising it, was collecting all of the tools that she would need for when she finally had the bravery and the self-knowledge and the good fortune to be able to choose to do the terrifying thing that she really needed to do. It's difficult in a world which asks us to be a consistent version of ourselves, not to be apologetic for having taken a winding path in our lives. But I think Ida does such a beautiful job of showing how, in some cases, that's the only way. What I especially enjoyed about talking to Ida is something I often hear my artist friends discuss, which is the total integration of your honest humanity in your work. The work is the process of living and the product is deeply and directly connected to the maker, which is something I think we lose in most modern careers. Working as an artist at its best is the work of knowing and exploring yourself. The antithesis of our accepted notions of professionalism, which asks us to ignore ourselves. Ultimately, work which encourages workers to remain attuned to their needs is the most sustainable work and a model from which I think we can all learn. My name is 
Ida Sophia and I'm a durational performance artist. I think the first thing that we have to do is sort of define what work is, yeah. you know, and for a creative, for an artist, I think that it's so constant to be drawing in all of the influences, the actions, the jobs, the the work, the experiences that come in from every single thing you do that therefore all of that is the work if that makes sense yeah so I feel like everything I've ever done (laughs) has been part of the work that it is to be an artist Mm. how when you were younger did you think about your future or what you imagined um for yourself Mm. I was a I was a very um, whimsical child, I suppose, <laughs> as you can tell from this space that we're sitting in. You know, this red room, and uh, it's a very cinematic and lush. And I wanted to sort of live within within the realm of of an atmospheric world that I I could exist in, and that all of my friends could exist in, and mm-hmm. my family, and that we could have just a fabulous time mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was growing up, I think that I was really attracted to doing things that reflected that whimsy and that were um, shiny and sort of experience-based, if you like, and definitely Mm people-facing. So my first jobs were in retail and in fashion. It's the first place where you get to present yourself to the world by what you're putting on yourself Mm -hmm. and also helping others to say you know you can be this you can be this you can be whatever you want to be yeah you know and facilitating that yeah it's very performative yes that's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking while you were talking um what were what was the sort of culture around work in your home and in your family Mm, very hard working Mm -hmm. absolutely um my uh, father was an entrepreneur and my my mum was an, well, is she's just retired. Uh, is an incredible hard worker. Always, I learned so much from her in terms of my approach to work. So very organised. Mm. Always looking forward to to know what needs to be done today, tomorrow, um, and in that way, I'm so grateful that I'm able to be organised. You know, the list was like the 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 holy piece of paper in the house yep. you know <laughs> we always knew what was happening in the diary it always stayed in the one place mm-hmm. and um that's given me a rigor that allows me to have um amb- ambition and and also to achieve those things through yep. being super organized yes yeah. yeah and i think at that age the comfort of structure really can't be underestimated mm. knowing what to expect knowing what to expect of yourself it feels good. Yeah. And, and what to expect of other people mm-hmm. and having a lot of integrity, I think. You know, if you say you're going to be there, be there five minutes early. Yeah. You know, you were today. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Yeah. Mm. Um, what was school like for you? School was... Oh, so primary school I went to a very small school so it was um you know a a lovely warm uh experience and 
High school was high school was a little harder. I found myself a little on the outside, and I and I think that that is very normal for a lot of people, you know. Yeah. Um, but I found my tribe in places outside of high school mm. through through primary school friends mm-hmm. through through just meeting people uh, as you would when when you're a little bit different you kind of like can pick each other out yes and uh and that has been something that's endured mm. uh throughout my life I think I've just naturally sought out those people yeah I I mm. remember having a conversation with my mum actually once she's a teacher and she was talking about how children have this incredible ability to sort of reach out into the world and find the things that they need if they're not getting them where they traditionally would definitely I mean high school is it's such a it can be so difficult so difficult and so brutal Mm. and there I remember a, a point a breaking point where I really needed to not be there and um and my mum really gave me the the sense of weight she instilled in me that if I stayed I would be stronger for it mm-hmm. and and I did and it was really hard but by the time I'd gotten through that maybe six months to a year sort of bad time and I'd stuck it out the resilience that I still have today everything's like water off a duck's back yeah. you know yeah it's it takes something to to stick it out and obviously when you've got the support mm. it's yeah but it, it was difficult at the yeah. time yeah mm. um as you were sort of coming to the end of school what were you thinking you would do next mm. i wanted to work in you know i talked earlier about this sort of cinematic quality that i loved about life yeah so I went straight into working, uh, well, into studying in theatre. Mm-hmm. So at Adelaide, the School of Art in the city, mm-hmm. and you know, making sets and learning how to make props and things like that. Mm. And I did it, and I loved it, but it wasn't. It didn't click. You know, it wasn't the thing. Mm. So I uh, stopped studying, and I and I started to work. Mm-hmm. And I knew that experience was the thing that I needed. Yep. And I also wanted to travel Mm -hmm. so desperately. Mm -hmm. I wanted to walk into all of the books that I had read, you know? Yeah. And uh, that that meant saving like crazy to to go to Paris. And you (laughs) did? Yes, I did. (laughs) I did, yeah. And uh, and to be honest, it was everything that I I had imagined. Great. It was. Wonderful. Such a rare experience. Yeah. Well, I was so organized, you know, I had researched (laughs) everything. Yeah. And yeah, it was, um, it was one of those, you know, formative Mm. trips. Mm. During that period where you were working and traveling, what were you thinking your future might start to look like? Well, I was very interested in business. I mentioned my dad was an entrepreneur. He mm-hmm. had his own business. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the things that we kind of intellectually sparred over. You know, we talked about um, business models and, you know, who who our customer was and how, how to best serve people with the thing that we were doing. Mm. And, you know, at the time that, that was uh, more relative to fashion mm-hmm. to me. You know, I wanted to make clothes that that instilled that 
that sort of hyper life, that that moment you put something on and then you're sort of transported. Mm. So that was kind of my direction at the time. But yeah, we really connected on that and I loved those conversations. Yeah. They were they were not so father daughter. We had a um a very equal friendship where it was student teacher both ways, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. Yeah, and it's such a it's such a remarkable moment when you find that that sort of whatever it is transformative thing that allows you to have that relationship with your parents to mm. break out of that mm. childhood dynamic. Mm, definitely. Um, so what did you do with that? So I think I would have started like you know a bunch of small businesses. God, I can't even remember what they are now. That they you know I'm sure I started a couple of clothing labels and yeah. and I. Actually, no, I ran a an antiques business for, for a couple of years. Wow. Yeah, so I was uh, sort of finding things and then obviously reselling them in markets, but really curated, you mm. know, collections of the weird and wonderful vintage glass eyes and scientific equipment and mm-hmm. uh, there's some apothecary bottles behind you left over and uh, things like eggs. and. Mm. That's hard work. That yeah. sort of work. Yeah, yeah. But I loved it, you mm. know. It was the treasure hunt. Yeah. And, uh, and and it's also a way to find people that are, that nerd out about the same things as you, <laughs> you know. So it's that community building. Definitely, definitely. Mm. And these objects, they, they're, they're sites of memories. So they don't kind of come in and leave your life. They come in, take on a story and then maybe leave your life to go to somewhere else. Mm. So they're inherently embedded um, with meaning and weight. Mm. And I was, I was very attracted to that being something that I could deal in, mm-hmm. in a business context. Yep. But yeah, even the thought of, you know, writing, giving them all numbers and, you know, doing records was something that my dad said to me and I was like, oh, right you know <laughs> and because for me I was like get the thing you know sell it meet some fabulous people but um the the way that you have to work mm. if you're going to work for yourself you have to take on many roles mm. and so there were some early lessons there you had that yeah mm. yeah it's um it's an incredibly disparate thing to do to work mm. for yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if this is sort of an over overly black and white question but throughout this period which I suppose is sort of your early to mid 20s yes yeah um were you the the sort of type of young person who was constantly doing that self-reflection to figure out whether this was what you wanted to be doing or were you something somebody who was very able to sort of just be in the moment and enjoy the pleasure of it Mm. not that those things have to stand apart but as a way to think yeah, maybe a little from, from both. I think I was jumping from one thing to the other, testing it out. Does this feel good? Does mm-hmm. this feel good? Mm-hmm. It feels good, I go there. But then, you know, when you're when you're brought up by, by parents who are really practical and who are both um, succeeding in what they're doing mm-hmm. in a way that, um, you know, you want to emulate, but those sorts of things that are associated with that, that you're interested in, like working in fashion, like being an antique dealer, they're not quite clicking. Mm-hmm. So I found myself going from one thing to the next. And in the meantime, building an artistic practice, you know, as 
I, I don't want to say the word hobby because it was absolutely my first love mm. and had always been. Mm. Um, but I guess I'd never considered that that could be my career because I hadn't seen it, you yeah. know, in front of me. Yeah. I mean, it's a rare thing to see as it a is. career. And it is often framed as something that most, well, not most people, but lots of people have a creative outlet. And so I think seeing the line between your practice being at just an outlet as opposed to being the centre of your life has to be a difficult mental leap to make for most young people. It's huge. Yeah. It was, and it takes so much courage. Mm. Yeah. So first I, I knew that I wanted to have a, a career in um, the creative sector mm. or in the arts. Mm-hmm. So I did my degree in photography mm. because that's a, you know, that's a, a, a really honourable creative career and again I finish it and it's not the thing and my all of my artwork is still ticking along in the back and it's still going hey me like come over here you know but society is telling me you you will never um you'll it'll never be financially viable yeah and at some point very shortly after I finished my degree actually it was just before I finished my degree but mm. I of course I finished it because why wouldn't you yeah um I I understood what I had to do mm. and that was four years ago mm-hmm. that I I had to be brave and use all of the lessons I had learned yeah. since my early 20s yeah and you know bite the bullet and do the thing that had always clicked Mm. it's interesting that you say that because one of the first things that you said was everything is part of your practice everything is part of your work and I think in spite of perhaps there being a, a way of framing what you did right up until that point as sort of trying to almost avoid the terrifying doing exactly what you want to do by trying to do more practical things you are teaching yourself lessons really important lessons and if you if you dived straight into being Mm -hmm. an artist at you know in your early 20s without all of those sort of savvy Mm -hmm. skills that you picked up along the way it probably would have been a nightmare for you yeah it wouldn't have been the right time yeah yeah I don't regret a moment Mm. of every job that I had Mm. you know every idea that I had it I can see all of the all of the links and all of the ties back. Yeah. And they're they're wonderful. Mm. Yeah. So how was that experience of making that choice? <laughs> well, I remember having the big conversation with my now husband, you know, the tears mm. and him just saying I have complete faith that you will do this. And again, it takes that one person to support you, to remind you of your resilience and to remind you that you have, you've got the skills and the skills you don't have, you'll easily learn. Yeah. But if you don't do this thing, then you're going to be unhappy for the rest of your life. And that might affect us, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it, it was so clear for me. Yeah. He was just my mirror, or mm. he is. Mm. Yeah. It's funny, there is, after you've sort of 
had that conversation and reframed it in that way, it takes on almost a pragmatic error in itself. <laughs> the decision to do that thing that you can't keep avoid avoiding, pardon me, that becomes essential after that point. You can, or otherwise other things in your life will start to suffer, mm-hmm. as your husband said. Mm-hmm. But after that conversation, what does your life look like? Well, then I was like, oh my God, there's as many ways to be an artist as there are artists, mm. you know? So what, it, what does it look like? I, I, I have to decide mm. what does it look like? And um, for me, it looked like going on a residency. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Bulgaria. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Had you been to Bulgaria before? No. Whoa. (laughs) Well, from Australia, it seems like a million miles away, right? And um, one of my best friends is Bulgarian, so I was aware of the culture and the beautiful language and the food, and you know, so I already had like a a love for it. But Mm. um, it, I needed to do something radical, something that challenged me, something that said, if this is the choice you're going to make, you know, can you handle it? Are you, are you gonna are you all in yeah and so I get on a plane and I go to Bulgaria for this month-long residency I know I'm going to be living in a house with three other artists I have a studio that is mine for mm. four full weeks mm. and and I can do what I want anything mm. supported by other uh, people that run the residency and it was it was the catalyst to to my my career knowing that this is what I'm going to do yeah right and it was the the first time that I made uh performance work wow Mm. that's intense it was to have that be the first work that you make after making that decision to go all in yeah tell me also natural yeah Yeah. yes Uh, I what tell me about the experience of creating that piece well I found myself resting on my on my uh knowledge of how structure gives you freedom Mm -hmm. so I made sure that I was inside of a routine Mm -hmm. going to the studio setting it up as I needed it to be set up with the materials that I needed so that when I locked that door I could work in a way that I never had before Mm -hmm. and just to see what is going to happen and as I planned that month and as I made the work it was the most natural thing that I had I had experienced this this way of of living and working wow mm, which I carry on to my how it works now yeah. what my weeks look like now I'm just asking this because I'm curious about it it's not a particularly linear question but do you find that your art practice has changed the way that you sort of process your life and the world Oh, yeah. Tell me a bit about that. Art is visual, mm-hmm. right? So if I could write about it, I, what I need to say, what I need to process, the things that are that we all go through, but we profoundly relate to something that someone else has made because we can see ourselves within it. Mm-hmm. It's visual and it's in-person and it's durational because I need to... Oh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Can you just ask me that question one more time? 
Um, <laughs> it's okay. I, it, it's a really hard question. And I think the reason that I ask it is because I have some close friends who are artists. And so a lot of the conversations that I have with them are there's something happening in their lives or there's an idea that they've come across oh, right. that yes. they're sort of trying to work out. And the process of making the work is how they work through that. Yes. Yeah, the process is super vulnerable mm. and I design it that way mm. in my in my work I try to create rituals and ceremony that slow down the dilution of that in our secular life mm. so everything that we go through all of our sort of birth life death um, the big things that happen in our life crises separation regrets mm. um if we give them process mm. which is just like an, any artist working through something in the studio but if the work becomes the way to work through it then that that does something for me mm. when it can be give given away mm. to the to the audience member yep. and that they can go this is for me and i can i can use this process mm. to walk through this thing that i'm dealing with mm. Whenever that is. Yeah, so we're coming back to that wanting to share the experience that you mentioned from your childhood. Which yeah. is interesting to be sort of touching that that part of yourself. Yeah. Um, okay, so sorry, I just got distracted by that because I'm interested in it. But you come back from this residency, you've made your first performance art piece. Yeah. Um, where next? So then I wanted to do training in performance. Yes. That was my, that was absolutely my next thing. Mm -hmm. I'd met a tribe of people in Bulgaria who were making experimental, underground, electric, you know, there were no, there was, there was nothing holding them back from mm. making the thing that they wanted to make. It was so authentic, mm. so radical. I'd never seen work like that before. And so I was invited to come back the year after to do a solo show at one of the mm. galleries there. So I knew I was coming back and I thought, all right, performance art training doesn't exist so much in Australia with the artists that I really want to work with. Mm. So time-wise, um, I did some, I did the cleaning the house workshop with the Marina Bramovic Institute mm -hmm. just before that solo show the, the year after. Yeah. And, you know, in the meantime, I'm such a researcher. So it was, it was to the books. It was, you know reading up on and broadening my my knowledge of performance art watching things you know asking questions getting involved with the different groups that you know you find on instagram and who's doing this in the world yeah. and what are they doing and what are they talking about what matters mm. what are what's the etiquette mm. you know we're we're working with the body which is the thing that feels so so right to me but it um it's a, it's, a, it's a totally different medium, even if you're using the same way as paint. Mm. Yeah. How was the show in Bulgaria? <laughs> it was amazing. It was so wild. We, uh, we got there and I had five days to make the work. That's one of them. Mm. Um, we're just looking at a, a chair that is not a chair. It's a piece of fabric that's been draped over a chair to represent that the chair isn't there, it's a memory of a chair. Mm -hmm. So I made a um, two chairs and a table and it was representative of the last uh, meal that I shared with my father before mm -hmm. he passed away. We can't sit at that table 
that chair we can't eat together again so mm-hmm. that work was uh, made in Bulgaria mm-hmm. and yeah I stayed there for the month and it was an amazing opportunity mm-hmm. yeah if this is too personal just say and then we will just move to another question how has your sort of relationship to art and your relationship to grief touched upon one another well thinking about using art as a way to move through the things that we experience Mm. I couldn't make art without making it about grief because it was an enormous thing that happened Mm. in my life Mm. yeah I think that when things happen to us the best thing that we can do is to when we're ready is to go towards it Mm -hmm. and to be brave Mm -hmm. and to gently talk to it and and Mm -hmm. see what it how it needs to manifest Mm -hmm. you know working through this in a public way through work Mm -hmm. with other people you you open yourself to be someone that other people can talk to about their grief yes and in that you find ways to to meet each other mm. and to be there for each other mm. and just to listen to others and you you don't feel as alone. Mm. And that goes really for any kind of issue that we go through as humans mm. when, when it's shared and when we realise that everyone else has this experience, that's that profound relatability mm. that is accessed through the work. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful to think of it as a as a sort of gateway to intimacy yeah this work okay so tell me a little bit about the last few years leading on from that show mm. well just before the pandemic hit mm-hmm. uh so i did that show in 2019 mm-hmm. and then in january 2020 i was in venice for the venice international performance art mm-hmm. week mm-hmm. so we did you know training and then we had um and then we had a live performance evenings public program mm. and i you know on the way back covid was erupting you know and i was tested as immediately and as soon as i touched down and of course lockdowns followed and i was so lost because i had found my tribe overseas and it was like the faucet had been closed and to be honest I was I was devastated I just felt like I you know where do I go from here when I was building my career essentially overseas with plans to to go and just to be within this um this big community that I had found and created Mm. and that was electric and you know where was the performance art in Adelaide and you know how how sorry for myself I was feeling (laughs) but then of course um you kind of pull yourselves up and I saw it then as an opportunity Mm -hmm. and I was like oh all right Adelaide like what's what's going on Mm. so I started um uh studying I did I knew that getting the my degree in art in Adelaide was going to be really important for my career in some in some careers it you know we know that it's important to have that piece of paper Mm. but more than that the community and the style of teaching from Adelaide Central School of Art 
it is it's more than I ever could have understood that it, that it would be for me mm. and the way that I run my practice and my my career so and then I discovered that Adelaide has an enormous history of performance art relating back to the 60s mm. you know um, with Eve and um, with Caxa so it's been an incredible enlightening time to realize that this is I'm actually in the perfect place yeah and there's so many of us here so you know finding out where everyone is knowing that Adelaide is so ready for performance art you know the Adelaide Biennial the two headlining artists Stellark and Mike Parr Mm. you know if that doesn't say that Adelaide wants this kind of work then I don't know what does yes so I feel very encouraged and um very grateful to be Mm. here particularly yeah Mm. it's rare I think maybe this is an obvious thing to say but it is very rare to have to change tack so suddenly in your life which so obviously so many of us had to last year but doing that quick change and having to reorient yourself to look forward to things that are actually accessible to you is a difficult but I think very beneficial mental exercise to realize that you can sort of you can find the things that you need definitely um wherever you are Mm -hmm. and however restricted you might be Mm -hmm. so here we are in the present day what are you sort of what's important to you at the moment and and what are you hoping for in the next days weeks months years whatever it might be Mm. well I've just gotten off the back of a 28-day-long performance. Yes. So the most important thing to me right now is recovery, um, body and mind. It was incredibly strenuous Mm. and incredible. Yes. But I'm listening to what my body's telling me that I need to do, Mm -hmm. which is to be slow. Mm. And second to that, I decided that I needed to do a an intensive residency period mm-hmm. so I've been I'm in the fifth week of a six week um, time mm-hmm. down at post office projects and I'm invested in the structure that I set out for myself so I'm there 7 a.m in the morning until 2 p.m mm. and that's when I know that I'm best you know mm at my most dynamic and I'm giving I'm able to give space and time and energy to all of the ideas that have been bubbling over the last you know year and a half Mm. but haven't been given any airtime because of this last performance regret yes so it's been a joy to again does it feel good go there Mm. and to follow those ideas down the rabbit hole Mm. and to work with the current things that in my life I'm dealing with mm. which I won't elaborate on now because it's you know it's all cooking in the studio and, and it's and it's not done yet yeah. <laughs> but um but it, that in um as well as that creative side I'm working with a mentor to figure out what the next you know mm. three to five years look like mm-hmm. and how how is my work going to be funded and how do I uh, get to do all of the things that I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's interesting to hear you make that comment, the seven to two comment. I have been having a lot of conversations over the last year or so with people about um, adulthood and Mm -hmm. sort of true adulthood, um, meaning that uh, an understanding of what you can do and what you can't do being really essential Mm. to, I guess, push back against that idea that more is always more or that you should be able to do everything or simply because you can do something you should, which is a problem I have constantly. Mm-hmm. But in fact, getting to the point where you are able to just comfortably say to yourself, this is where I'm strong. This is where I want to work. And this is for somebody else to do. Yeah. Which I really. Hire your weakness, right? <laughs> totally. And I would say in addition to that, we, we have to, as part of our adulthood, we have to factor in reflection, mm. you know, to look back at the week. Okay, I did seven till two, three days. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? Was it too much? Mm-hmm. Was it too little? Mm. You know, where did I, where, where could my time been spent better? Mm. Did I do my best? Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that my dad instilled in me, you know, every weekend ask yourself, did, did you do your best? And if not, you know, go back to that person and say, I wish I'd said it like this Mm. or, you know, respond in a moment of clarity rather than reacting in the moment. Yes. (laughs) But also I think that that constant checking in helps to mitigate against regret. Mm. The bigger things that grow, that grow out of something that could have been a very small sort of chink. Yes. Um, it's interesting hearing you say that it makes me think of something my mother said to me, which is sort of the, um, the very soft equivalent to doing the end of week check-in, which was when I was growing up, uh, what she referred to as the Friday night cry, (laughs) which she doesn't actually remember telling me about, but I think I must've been sort of like five or six. And she was like, don't worry. It's just the Friday night cry. It's what we do at the end of the week. We think about the week, we process it, and then we go to bed and cry. And so my entire childhood says a great deal about me as a human being. I would get into bed and think about all of the things from the week and all of the things that had made me feel sad or angry and have a little cry. And then I'd be like, okay, and go to sleep. It's just that processing, regular processing, regular checking in. Because if you don't do that work, it builds up Mm. and then... The weird things start to happen. Yeah. I mean, and we're, we're sort of like not trained to, to, to do the opposite. Like, yes, look at, look at back at what we could have done better, mm. maybe the negatives, but where are the wins? Yeah. You know, where, where do we get to write down the wins and, you know, the Friday night joy? Yes. <laughs> it doesn't sound yes. as good as the Friday night cry. Like, no, but you need both. Yeah. You're right. You need to acknowledge it because you just forget those things. It's so much easier to remember the difficulties. Yes. And there's so many little ones, you know, Yeah, they really do add up um, and yeah. let us know that we're doing the right thing. Yes. Yeah. Those you know? signposts. Yeah. And more than ever now that our lives feel in many ways smaller, I think sort of tapping into the joys that we do have access to mm-hmm. it's really vital um okay so my last question is a cheap question but i always ask it just in case <laughs> um is there anything that you feel is really important to your story that we haven't talked about oh it's been so 
you've you've brought out a lot of things in me that I I have never talked about actually. So it's mm. I think at the end of the day, knowing that you're on your own path, like I could have been an artist at twenty two, mm. but it so happened that it was later on. All the timing is always perfect, you know. People say there's never a right time, but maybe there's never a wrong time. Yeah. Yeah. I know that sounds cliche, but yeah, I think everything's everything's happening as it should, and um, I'm constantly excited <laughs> about about work, mm. about the work that I can make. Mm. You know. Mm. It's such an exciting and rewarding career choice and one that you have to be, you know, it's a radical decision to be yourself mm. and that is what this job asks of you mm. every day, mm. every day. <laughs> so, yeah, that would probably be my last word. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> we did it. Yay. Wow, you were so easy to talk to. Thank oh you. My <laughs>